Jesus was teaching his um, disciples. And they asked him, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. And he said back to them, so pray this way. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we ourselves have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, when you read that, that is the scriptural text of this prayer. And I want to start with a little bit of background as to what we have sort of entered into in our lives. And that is, we repeat, when we say the prayer, we sort of repeat the liturgy that has entered into our vocabulary, into society. We, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread Forgive our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us or our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then we repeat this part, for thine is the kingdom and the glory and the, and the kingdom, power and glory forever. Amen. See, I can't even remember the liturgy part of it anymore. Now, that last part, kingdom, power, glory forever. Amen. That is something that's been tacked on to the church, maybe in the first, second, third century. As the church started to use this prayer as part of their liturgy, that portion got tacked on. That's not actually in the Bible. Now, if you want to be sort of an obnoxious person to people, you can, you can call them on that. You say, you know, that's not actually in the Bible. Um, and they'll really love you for that when you tell them that kind of stuff, that you make fat friends fast when you point out inconsistencies in the way they say things. Um, so for that, we're not going to talk about that part because that's part of the liturgy. Now, the words that we read from the Bible, biblically, those are the words that we want to look at. Um, we want to take out art in heaven. Um, we want to take out the word Halloween. We want to take out the thighs and the thines and all of those words. We want to just look at the scriptural text. And so what we want to examine is not the uh, liturgical, historical sense of the prayer. We want to really see what Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray. Now, here's another point that you can tell people that will really make you a lot of friends. This isn't technically the Lord's Prayer. I know, that comes as a shock. We can call it the Lord's Prayer. That's fine. I don't care if you call it the Lord's Prayer. You can do that all day long. But this is not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is actually in John 17, when he's on his knees in the garden praying to God, you know, keep them safe, uh, who you call my own, you've brought to me, all of that stuff that he's praying in uh, 17 just before he's arrested. That's what I would consider the Lord's Prayer. That is the prayer that he prayed to his father. This is a prayer that he's teaching to the disciples on how they should pray. So I would more categorize this as the disciples' prayer. You'll notice that just to avoid controversy, I've called this a series on the prayer so that we don't get our signals crossed. But if you call it the Lord's Prayer, that's fine. You're not going to, like, I'm not going to be upset at you. You're not going to, like, get kicked out of this church or anything like that. It's the Lord's Prayer. That's the way we know it as. But technically, it's not the Lord's Prayer. So I just want to put that out in the front there because I think this is an important part of that. 
This prayer has impacted the world. It's impacted the life of the church um, for 2,000 years. Um, And it's a revolutionary prayer. It is a prayer that caused controversy at the time uh, because Jesus was not without controversy. It was a political prayer. It was a revolutionary prayer. This was a prayer that if you prayed it, things were going to happen. When you prayed a prayer like this, it was important that you knew that you were not waiting around for something to happen, that you were calling on God to make things happen. The other thing that I want to point out about this prayer is not that the point of this prayer is to pray word for word. And in fact, we're going to talk about that each week as to how we can apply each line to sort of expand our prayer life, to say, you know what, this is the way that this impacts me. This is the way that I can speak about these things. This is the way that it helps me. So the point that that Jesus was making here was not pray these words. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. So pray in this, it's a, it's a model of prayer and not a prayer that needs to be said word for word. Now, we can say it word for word. There's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, lots of people recite it. Um, we, we say it at funerals. We say it at the times when we need strength. We say it at times when that we, we want to feel close to God. And it is an important prayer and the words do still have meaning. But I don't want to strip them of their meaning by just making it Uh, liturgy, just making it uh, something that we memorize and say just because we want to say it because it feels right in the moment. I want us to put the meaning back in this. And so this is going to guide our prayers. It's going to give us a point of reference on all of these things that we're working toward and working on. But this is a controversial prayer when it was first prayed. And when Jesus prayed it, it comes right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. So whenever we talk about anything in Matthew 5, 6, or 7, you can immediately know that we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And so where this comes in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, we're square in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, and or right in the, the Sermon on the Mount. And a lot of churches use the Sermon on the Mount as sort of their values of their building of, you know, this is what we stand for, these are our ethics. I think the, the prayer that Jesus shares here in this middle is a much more robust and more beautiful picture of the kingdom ethics that Jesus was trying to teach. And so we're going to talk about all of that and really the reasons why. And so this first verse, our father in heaven, may your name be holy. That's what we're going to talk about today. This first verse in verse nine. Now, the, the first part of the verse is our father. It starts with two really important words. Now, the way that this is set up in Greek is actually father is the first word. But I'm going to talk about our first because that's in our language. That's the way it works. The reason that it's a plural, and this is really important when we're thinking about that. The reason it is plural is because there are two big factors that Jesus was getting us to point at. Number one is we pray in our father, not my father. We pray our father because we are praying with the ancient witnesses of the church. We're praying with such a great witness of people that the entire church has come along and said that we declare you to be our Lord. We declare you to be our father. We declare you to be our God and savior over all of us. And so we join in that declaration to say, God, you are are for all of us. God, you are with us. 
And this is also a prayer of intercession. It's a prayer of interceding on behalf of those that we're praying with and praying for. We say our father, not my father, because we want to say, God, you are father to those people that are here in my life as well. The people that can't pray for themselves, the people that are too sick to know or or too far to know or too far to understand that you take care of those people as well. And so we stand in that gap. We stand in front of that and say, our father, not my father, because we want to make the point that God stands for all of us, that God is the witness to the entire church and that. In the Greek, this phrase literally means father of us. It's not heavenly father. It's not a, an adverb as to where God is. It's a, it is saying to us, Father of us, Father of all of us. When we pray our Father as a congregation, we cease to be individuals coming to church with our own particular burdens. But instead, we become part of a family with a common heritage and shared values. It puts us square in the middle of that community. That emphasis on we are all in this together. This is our father that we're praying to. This is not my father that I have a particular set of needs for, a particular set of petitions for, a particular set of wants for. This is our father. We have the same needs. We have the same prayers. We share the same burdens. And when we open it up with our father, we're saying, I see that in you. I see that in us. I see that the Lord can take care of us all because we are all part of this together. It brings us into unity. When we all pray to a common father, we're all obligated to treat each other as brothers and sisters. When we say our father instead of my father, it brings us into a family. It brings us all into community, into unity with one another, where we can say to one another, I treat you, I see you, you are my brother, you are my sister. Why would you be my enemy when we're praying our father? When we are praying together in unity to our father, we cannot be estranged from each other. We cannot push each other away because he is the father of us. I'm going to go talk to our father. I'm going to go say hello to him. We also are emphasizing the point of a priesthood of all believers, as the New Testament writes. That once we have Christ in us, once we become followers of Christ We don't need someone to go and intercede on our behalf. We don't need to take everything to a priest or a pastor and say, here, I need you to do this for me. I need you to pray over me. I need you to heal me because we can go and petition directly to God. He belongs to us all. We are all part of this. To be a son or daughter is to regard all one's possessions as the property of the father. To obey the father in all things and never to, uh, never to blame him before anyone. To support him with all one's power. So let's talk about the word father here for a moment. Because by far, without a doubt, emphasis, double exclamation point. The most controversial word in this prayer is the word father. And I think sometimes we skip right over that because we've taken it for granted that we can call out our father anytime we want to. 
But where in the Old Testament do we see the word Father being used in the context of God? Very, very infrequently. Father is applied to God so infrequently in the New Testament, and it's never referring to God as my Father. It always refers to God as the Father of the nation of Israel. The God of my fathers, the God of my ancestors, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, the God of Israel. These were the names of God. Yahweh was so powerful. And in fact, uh, Jews today don't even use the name Yahweh. They're not allowed to say it. So instead, they go so far away from that, they remove themselves. They just say Hashem, which means the name in Hebrew. That God is not even known by his name because it's too powerful to even speak. And yet, Jesus doesn't call him God of my ancestors, God of my fathers, God of Israel. He calls him Father, which was, whoa, baby, you better slow yourself down because that's not the way we talk about God around here. Language like that, that could get you killed. I don't know who you are, but that could get you uh, really strung up if you're not careful. Um, It always referred to God as the father of Israel. But Jesus calls God father more than 60 times in the New Testament. This was such a revolutionary and controversial topic that we, we can't even comprehend anymore. But this was something that... Uh, someone listening to this would have been like, no, I'm out now. There's no way that I would talk to the God of the universe in this way. But the revelation of God as our personal father is based on the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. It's not that he wasn't a father to his people in the Old Testament, but that's not how he was revealing himself to his people. It's only in the New Testament that we discover that God is now the father of those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. That he creates sons and daughters. That he is creator of them, but he's also the loving father of them. So biblically, when we say father, when Jesus is using the term father here, he's talking about three things. Biblically, father has three things um, in it. So first of all, father means origin. So it's where we come from. It's our source. It's where we have begun our lives. Just like our earthly fathers, we come from them. Our origins are in them. Our heavenly father, we talk about that. He is our origin. He is our source. He is our source of life. He is where we've come from. And he is the starting point of all those conversations. And so when we say father, we're saying, I am your son. I have come from you. I am your origin. I am your source. You are my source. And the second thing is the parental authority. So as we call someone father, they have some sort of authority over us. They have some sort of idea of where, uh, how we can discipline and how we can treat them and how we, can, uh, how we are responsible for them, how we can move them forward. And then the third thing is the love that comes from a father, the tender care that a father gives his children that he puts into their lives and grants them. But the love that comes from a father is so overwhelming, it's so big and so massive that all of these things that a father can come so close and yet be so far away in authority. But the word father fundamentally changes our relationship to our creator. It fundamentally changes who we say God is. 
because he's no longer just in the stars. He's no longer this thing that's just so far removed, but he's father. It's an intimate word that means you are here with me and I see that and I, I feel that. Your love and your authority and I can look at you and say, I have come from you and I belong to you. The next words are in heaven. Now, this doesn't mean exactly what we think it means, because when we say our father, father of us in heaven, we're not talking about placing God in some sort of box. We're not talking about putting God and containing him in a certain particular place. When the Jews talked about in ancient Israel and in the first century, when they talked about heaven, they talked about it as a place of just divine immensity. They talked about it by looking up at the skies and said, there is heaven, this immense thing, this thing that is never ending, that we cannot leave, that we cannot be away from, that always is in our lives. When we look at the sky or the heavens in this sense, we see something of an overwhelming glory of God. When we look up, we always see the sky. It is always there. So Father in heaven means you are a God who sees everything and never leaves me. This is why the psalmist declares the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. It is the immensity, it is the sheer, um, I cannot comprehend the largeness of it. It is Never ending. It is immense and it is infinite and it goes on forever. And yet it is so close. Yet we know him by his name, Father. He comes so close to us and yet is so overwhelmingly good and big. The heavens represent all that we cannot know. And so when when the first century Jews would talk about heaven, they would talk about heaven in regards to it's not earth. I can see earth. I can touch it. I can, I can know its intricacies. I can walk along the path. I can smell the air. I can hear the birds. I can eat its food. But when we declare the heavens, we're declaring a thing that we cannot know, we cannot touch, we cannot see or smell or anything. And so when they look up and see the sky, they say it must be like that. It must be like this thing that we cannot get rid of, that's so big that we cannot see the end of it. It's the idea that it's not just an earthly father that we're praying to, but a God who is there somewhere else, the supernatural, inflicting on us the, the, the joys and the blessings that only he could do. It's saying that God is beyond all places. It's saying that God can reach across the earth and yet be so intimately close to us at all times. We are claiming that this being whom we call father not only loves us as a parent and even more than a parent, but also Lord and creator of all that there is. We can know his love and we can know his presence and yet he is the creator of all things. Don't think about that too long because that starts to turn your brain sort of inside out. Like how can this God be so big and so immense and create everything and hold the power of the universe in just his hands and yet knows my name? 
to be known by my name, by this creator, the one that I call Father. God is also inescapable, that no matter where we go, he will always be there. And we can bury ourselves in a hole, we can find a cave and live in that for years and years and years, but when we finally emerge, God is there. Just as the sky welcomes us, just as the sky holds all of these things, God is there through all of this. So we say, Father of us in heaven, Father of us who is inescapable, Father of us who has created all of this that we see and all of this that we don't see, Father of us who is over all and in all and in me and in you, Father of us, come near me. Father of us who is not here on earth but is in a place that we just don't understand, that we just don't know, that we can't come close to, not yet. And so we pray, may your name be made holy. This is the first of the six petitions in the prayer. The first three are God's and the last three are ours. So um, in this first one, we're talking about your name be made holy. So your name your kingdom, your will. Those are the first three petitions and they're asking God for his, your, your, your. And then our bread, our debt, our temptation. The last three are our petitions. But this is the first one. May your name be made holy. Normally we hear that as hallowed be your name, but we're gonna retire the name hallowed right here, right now, because nobody knows what that word means. So when we're praying a prayer to God and we say, hallowed be thy name. Great. What did I just say? What did I just want to happen in my life? How can I now live this out if I don't understand what I'm praying? This is related to the third commandment that God gave us in Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the Lord your God, his name in vain. For the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, we've applied that to swearing, to cursing, to profanity. But I think that's a really shallow, a really simple reading of that. Because that's not what God was talking about when he said that commandment. What he wants is his name to be holier than everything else. He wants his name to be set apart from everything else. He wants his name to be sacred above everything else. Because the name is all you have. What your name is, is who you are. What your name is, is your reputation. It goes out in front of you. And so if God's name is uh, uh, profaned, if, God, if you're using God's name in vain, it means you are taking God's name for a very small purpose. It means you're using God's name in a way that God does not intend it to be used. It means you're using God's name in such a way that it makes him look bad. It makes him look less than he really is. And God is saying, I don't want you to use my name in a small way. My name is meant to be big. I brought you out of Egypt. That's what my name is. 
I am who I am. I have the power of the universe. I am. So don't use my name in small ways. Don't use my name to justify your political stance or don't use my name to justify your wars or don't use my name to justify the things that you think are okay to do ethically because, oh, I believe in a God and this is what God has told me to do. Mm -mm. That's what this verse is talking about. That's what that commandment is talking about. God's name is holy. It's the only thing that we have to recognize him by. And so it's so important that his name be made holy. And how do we make God's name holy? Let's just say a prayer and hope for the best, right? God, I hope, I really, really, really hope that your name is made holy in some other way. I really, really hope that people will start to believe your name is holy. I really, really hope that you live in such a way, God, that you will make it known to other people that you are a holy God and that I don't have to do anything. That my part in this process is completely passive. By the way, this is not a passive verse. This is an active verb. It's not, I hope that your name stays holy. I hope that people think your name is holy. May your name be made holy. Okay, great. I hope it's made holy. And so I hope that someone comes along and can learn how to make your name holy. The hallowedness is in us. Hallowed be your name. That's our part. We're not asking God to make his name holy. God's name is holy. God can't make his name holier. It is the holiest thing out there. So when we pray, may your name be holy, this is not God making himself holier. This is us making his name holy. This is us not profaning the name of God by taking it and using it in small ways. This is us stepping up and saying, we're going to put God's name out there. This is who God is. I hope I don't mess this up because it's the most important thing that I can do. When we come here each week and say, this is who our God is, I don't want to misrepresent him. I don't want him out in this community with people saying, that's not who God is. That's not the God I know. God, may your name be made holy through my actions, through my love, through my character, by the choices that I make, by the words that I say, by the people that I accept into my life. God's name is holy, and praying for it doesn't make it holier. It's not that our prayer hollows his name, it's that our prayer asks his name to be made holy in us. God, I don't want to mess this up. Father of us, in the immensity of the sky, in the infinite wisdom of the world, in the universe, we proclaim you to be true and may your name be made holy through us. Boy, that's an opening line. God, help me not to make this up. The Greek word there, hagiathato, means to make holy. When we're saying, may your name be made holy, we're saying to be made holy. What does the word holy mean, though? 
How do we make something holy? Well, we make it uh, uh, set apart is what the word holy actually means, to set apart. So when we say, God, I want to make your name holy, may your name be made holy through me. It's God, may your name be set apart from everything else in my life. May your name, how about this, dwell in everything that I do. How about, God, that I've set apart you because I've elevated you to a new level. I've elevated you above everything else. I've set you apart and said, no, this is not God. This is who God is. God is not here in my lying. God is not here in my fear. God is not here in all of those questions and doubts that I have. God is set apart. He's different than that. Your name is made holy because it is revered. It is glorified. It is set apart from all other names. Have we done that? Have we worked? Have we been active in that role of making God's name set apart from everything else that we do? We're saying, may your name be made holy, may it be glorified, may it be set apart. But also think about name. What does that mean? It means your reputation, what goes out in front of you, what is what you are known by. So we're saying, Father of us in the immensity of the universe and the mystery of the infinite, may your reputation May who you say you are be reflected in who I say you are. May your reputation be set apart in everything that we do in the community. When we were setting out to plant this church, one of the hardest things that we had to think about first was our name. Because our name goes out there in the community. It represents who we are. And it goes ahead of us and does the work. And if we're going to be known by our name, if we're going to be known in this community, we want the name of God to be known first. And we want to be a church that's not first known as hyphen, but we want to be a church that's known as people that love God. I know the people that go there, they love God. I know the people that go there, they make God's name known to everything. We set it apart. We say, God Use me to make your name holy. And so if this is not to be a memorization, if this is not to be a liturgy, if this is not just to be, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray this prayer over my life every day, every morning, uh, uh, every time at lunch, whenever I feel the need to say the Lord's Prayer, I'm going to say this. What do we then change? Well, we start to think in ways, how do these words affect us? How do the words that Jesus set before us, how do they affect us? God, specifically in my life, you are my father. I can come to you and know love. God, thank you for the love that you share. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your discipline. Thank you for your authority. Thank you for creation. Thank you that I have my source and my life in you. And now let me turn the page because you've given me a name. You've given me life. You've given me strength. You've given me power to do all these things that you've commanded me to do. Let me first make your name great in this community. Let me first set you apart in my life 
above everything else. Let me first be the one to wake up in the morning and say, God, your name is so good. Help me to find the ways to make your name holy. We can pray that. We don't have to pray the old way. We don't have to say, art thou hallowed. We get to say, God, use me to make you known in this world. God, use me for big things. The first blessing that God gave his people in Genesis 12 is to Abraham. And he says to him, I will make your name great. You stick with me and I will make your name great because the name is so important. Who we say God is is up to us. It's up to this community. It's up to our prayers and who we see him as. And Jesus has given us a way to say, let me be a part of that. Let me be a person that can stand in front of everything else and say, this is who God is. Don't listen to this over here. Because those people that think they represent God, those people that think they're speaking for God, they're not doing it. They're profaning his name. They're using it in the wrong way. They're stepping out in a way that wasn't made for God's name. Because God's name is holy. And here's how I know. God of the universe, help me to live in a way that reflects your name. That helps me to bring all of those things together. Help me to make choices that drive people to know you. That brings your name out into the community in ways that they never knew possible. This is your reputation, God. But God didn't want to just make Abraham's name great because he liked the name Abraham. It's an okay name. God's purpose in making Abraham's name great was to make his name great. The things that God gives, the blessings, the love, the grace, the mercy, the power, his presence, they're not to make us great. They're not to make this church great. They're to make his name great. Let me be a part of that. Father of us in heaven, in the holiest of places, in the places we can't see, in the places that we don't know and don't understand, in the unraveled mystery. Let me be the person who makes your name known. Let me be the person who creates your name and your reputation above all things.